Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. Byron, why do you hate coffee? Because it's disgusting. Dude, no, it's, it's bitter. Not, it's like brown dirt water. I don't, it's just gross. No, it's not, Like, dude, I'm it's... cool with everybody else liking it. Like, I don't get, like, offended that people are like, not until I have my coffee, constant jokes, but, like, I, I try to drink it in college. I, I literally would go with friends to do homework in coffee shops, and I tried it, like, every way I could think. Like, I tried it hot. I tried it with, like, creamer, like, way too much creamer, way too much sugar. Um, I tried it with every way I could think of, and I just can't drink the stuff. Like, I drink teas. I don't drink a lot of hot teas because I'm in Arizona, and it's not cold enough usually for me to drink hot tea, but I do drink tea. But, yeah, coffee's disgusting. No, it's not, dude. I'm hoping to get the article soon that's saying that millennials ruined coffee, even though it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And then I could say I ruined coffee personally. That would be my... No. That being said, my wife works for a very popular coffee shop chain. So I don't really want them to ruin coffee because right now it's part of our income. But (laughs) I'm just being honest. Fair enough. Well, Byron, despite the fact that we ruin things and we're super opinionated, uh, I I do feel like we need to be cordial and we need to be... um, I don't know, sort of mature. So once again, it's my favorite new segment of the show where we apologize. So this week, though, we're apologizing for our last week's guest. Do you remember what Moose said that was kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe rude? Do you remember the thing that he said that he didn't want us to have in the show, but we put it in the show anyways because he said it? Well, the show hasn't been published yet, so no. Yeah, but you were on it. You recorded it with me. You remember what yes, he said. Yes, but... And I don't really remember what he said, but the thing is, like, it's not been put out yet, so I can't listen to the final. You do all the editing. You do all the work on this show. I just show up. So yeah, what I, do you don't know, I don't know what, what you said. And our, guest, what, our yeah. guest is already laughing before we introduce him. <laughs> um, no, but you're, yeah, what do you call yourself? You, you have a name for yourself? You got to me? No, I'm talking to Byron, not you yet, Chuck. We'll get to you in a second. No, Byron, you I have, have a, a name for myself? Yeah, you say, I am the. Because I put in the work, and then you just show up because you're the... Oh, yeah, I'm the talent. I don't have to do any work. I don't do any prep work. I just get a script, um, and then I show up and record, and I I just say things, and that's it. I don't have to think about it ahead of time, usually. I'm just here because I'm pretty. Oh, my goodness. So Which is fun to say because, if you don't know what I look like, you don't know what I look like because this is a radio show. Byron's super pretty, though. But, no, last week on, on our show that... When people listen to this show, it will have been a week ago. So we're pretending like this is. Yeah, but Anyways. I can't pretend because I don't remember what he said. He I remember the conversation. Golden Corral, dude. Golden Corral. Oh, no, oh, that, that was my you're, fault, though. I made him do it. You're killing the segment, the segment where we apologize for saying things that hey, are rude. Guess what? If you just throw things on me like you just said you were going to, <laughs> I, can't pre- I can't prepare. But I'm so, testing yeah, the I, whole theory that you're the talent. That's the point. Well, did I get him to say something funny? Yes, I did. You're welcome. <laughs> I got him to put his own foot in his mouth. He's a good friend of mine, and it was funny. Um, but yeah, you're right. He, he, I think he does feel better about that. But he used to, he used, you know how like there's a website, People of Walmart. Yeah. And, like when you walk into Walmart, there's always somebody you're just like, oh wow, they're here right now. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a, like a hateful thing. It's just like stuff people wear in Walmart or whatever. Like it's just a weird place. People don't necessarily oh, dress their best to go to Walmart. It's not even like gist. their seventeenth best. Um, <laughs> but like Golden Corral, we, he's for a long time compared Golden Corral to Walmart in that aspect. 
also he made the same uh, point on the podcast that they're also very close to each other often. They're uh, in Kansas City in particular. We, there was a Walmart we used to go to that we would see people who should be on people of Walmart regularly. Now we didn't take their pictures without their permission because we're not scumbags. But uh, but it was also right next to a Golden Corral. And one time, because I knew he hated it, I tried to convince him to go to Golden Corral after oh going God, to Walmart, it. which he didn't like going to anyway. <clears throat> like sometimes he would act like he was like physically sick going to Walmart, and so I tried to convince him to go to Golden Corral too. And so it was one. Funny. Once again, we, we need to apologize. I think this is just a regular segment of the show because we've had to apologize to Arkansas. And I think I apologized to you once. And then we apologize. I can't remember all of the apologies we've had to make, all the allowances we're having to make for just opening our mouths and saying things. But even though I had nothing to do with it for the first time yet. To um, be fair, I didn't say it. I just baited him. I know you, you still you still baited him. I mean, so. it's my fault, but I, he knew it was coming. He, he but to, knew it was going to happen if he's on our show. So. To Golden Corral and all of its loyal patrons, this podcast would like to apologize. Is We're that sorry. Good? We're so sorry. We're sorry. With that sorry. being said, it is time for our sponsor, where we try to actually be a little more professional. So this hooray. week's yeah, hooray! So here's the sponsor plug. Okay, now that's over. That was cute, uh-huh. Josiah. Thanks. I, I'm really professional. Really, I mean, this is a very legitimate podcast, and we have interns, and all the things that make it legitimate are happening presently, right? Correct. Correct. I'm glad we are patting ourselves on the back. Someone needs to give us a participation trophy for having this podcast. That would oh, be. Oh, that would be great. Can we get that, a participation award? That would for... be actually super amazing. <laughs> I would name that one up because it'd be funny. I don't know who to talk to. <laughs> About participation trophies, but I really feel entitled to having did I, one. Did I tell you that we found some in my parents' garage recently when Will was home in December? Were they, were they yours or Will's? Uh, mostly Will's. I had one of too. Of course, they but were like Will's. we got some great ones that I was thinking about using for like a loser trophy for our fantasy football league. But they're great. <laughs> like one of them's like a participation award for like some random uh, community basketball tournament he did like in junior high or something like it says the most like the weirdest thing in the world like it's fantastic all they I were hear... they were buried in my grandparents or my parents garage just gathering dust but we busted them out and we were laughing hysterically at them all i'm hearing is further evidence for why we call will your older brother the favorite child obviously he would have the most trophies it makes perfect sense yeah yeah he's the favorite anyways i don't know who to talk to about that hook us up with a participation trophy that would be great Thanks a lot. That would be the best, actually. <laughs> I got a guy. <laughs> Speaking of, hey, Chuck, welcome to the show. People already heard your, your Chuck voice, as I like to call it. Your booming laugh. <laughs> but well, oh, thank, thank you for having me. You are welcome. Could you tell us your, your full name and then also the name that me and Byron call you and also your age and location? So my name is uh, Chuck Sanford. Uh, I am currently in Prescott Valley, Arizona. Yeah, he is. I and 30 hang on 31 31 i don't remember if my birthday had come yet um (laughs) and then so way back like a million years ago when we were young people um which it's funny because some people insist that we still are uh these guys uh, gave me the nickname uh combat chuck what what yeah sorry continue yeah uh which is is a really funny because I actually hadn't heard the song at the time. I didn't know it was a song when they first started calling me that. Um, 
And then like, when I heard the song, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's a compliment for sure. I like that. And uh, yeah. So for those of you that don't know, or didn't grow up in like a little Christian bubble and only listen to Jesus music or whatever, there's this band called five iron frenzy. They were good. They were good. They were good. They were really good to quote Reliant K. Oh my goodness. Uh, a song about Five Iron Frenzy. There's another Jesus Band's song about a different <laughs> Jesus Band. Um, so anyways, Byron actually was the one that introduced me. I was me a to- huge fan of Five. Oh, I still am. I think they're great. But uh, yeah, they they have this song called Combat Chuck. It's a, it's a really short, funny, goofy song. And when I met Chuck, so Chuck is like 17 feet tall. Um, or 18 feet tall. And has been since, like, junior high. Seriously. Like, Chuck, how I'm tall are you? I'm not a small you? human being, but Chuck has, like, always been huge compared to me. And so I thought Combat Chuck was a fitting name. I swear, when you were 13, you were six feet tall already, Chuck. Uh, yeah, so I am I am 6'6", six, six, and I actually stopped growing about 13. Oh, my gosh. Uh, are you six? So, you were seriously 6'6 six, six at 13? Mm-hmm. Oh my! I think I was like six five and a half at thirteen, and uh, so it wasn't a dream. Right. So that was real. I was I thought for sure I was exaggerating that, but I always you were always this giant man child as far as we were considered. So yeah, yeah. there's actually a, a video of me with my mom when I was a, a little kid, and uh, I am uh, like up almost like past, past her waist, not quite to her shoulder. And, uh, and he was a newborn. <laughs> I was actually three and a half. Um, we were like, oh, this, this is a, a weird video from when I was like six or seven. And then I looked at the date stamp on the video and it's, it's 1990 just before or just after my birthday. And it's like, oh, dude, you know, you don't have like gigantism or something. That's crazy. Um, wow. Just uh, really? <laughs> Sorry, Chuck, you cut out for a second. What did you say? I, I grew really fast and and really awkwardly. So I, I would not have been surprised. Like, if I had not stopped growing when I did, like, I remember, like, praying to God, like, please, God, don't let me get any bigger than this because I already can't find clothing that fits. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That is ridiculous. Well. Yeah. Both my parents are kind of smaller people. Um but then all my brothers and I are kind of big, and uh, and we had to kind of figure out, um, like, fig- we're trying to figure out why. My dad was a nuclear reactor operator in the Navy, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're the Hulk, basically. <laughs> uh, only not that strong. I'm probably quite, strong enough, Not though. quite that strong. He's pretty close. Oh, oh my Lanta. Well, Chuck, it is super good to have you on the, the show. We're going to talk a little more about your location because it's a very unique location, particularly to me and Byron. But before we do that, we have to do what we always do with every young millennial pastor. Since you already brought up that you're young, you're a millennial, you were born in, I'm going to assume, 1987, which is the year me and Byron were also born. You yes. you fit that generational parameter thing requirement. So we're going to, uh, we're going to see what kind of a stereotype you might be, because according to the Google and the internet and the world at large and all of the news outlets, we are just basically stereotypes that ruin everything. So we'll see how much of a stereotype you are. You ready? Let's do it. All right, Chuck, do your parents pay for your living expenses? 
No, they do not. <laughs> so no one's paying your rent, your utilities, your phone, your insurance, because basically that's that's what's going on according to the news. Well, I mean, I'm I'm paying it, and my wife is paying it, so somebody's paying it. <laughs> but this is this is according. I mean, this is supposedly how millennial parents get their kids to move out is they just pay for another place for them to live. That's that's the stereotype. So, oh, I would love that stereotype. That'd be great. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. What was the last participation trophy you? This says one, but really it's showed up for. <laughs> Um, so actually when I was, um, when I was a little kid, I, the only time I ever got a a participation trophy, uh, was after uh, T-ball and, uh, my dad said something like, you know, that's not a real trophy. You didn't actually win. And then like, did he take it? So totally ruined it. He didn't take it away. Um, he should have. Looking back, I might, I might have taken it away to my kids. Probably not. I wouldn't have said. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have said anything at all to my kids. But he was very much. He wanted to make it really clear that I did not earn that trophy. That is amazing. Hey, I have a new theory on participation trophies. By the way, um, I know you guys are in churches, so you might not get this. But like, like as pastors, I mean. But like in a lot of corporate worlds, like you get um, rewards for anniversaries. Like my, one of my jobs that I had, you know, recently, I was there for a year. They gave me a keychain that broke immediately, by the way. Um, but I feel like that's a participation award for adults. Like, hey, you suffered through our corporate crap for a whole year. Here's a keychain with our, with our initial on it. Um, so I think that's participation awards. And I think those are very common for adults. And I just want to talk about that. I think it'll be fun. We'll have to do that sometime soon. Basically, it's just that entitlement being perpetuated. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, well, well, it's also companies saying, hey, we care about you by giving you cheap crap that breaks immediately. So that's basically fun. just like you survived us for a year. Here's exactly. A, here, here's a keychain that'll break. All right, Chuck, next question. Why do you hate Applebee's so much? Um, because they don't know how to make a steak. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually legitimately don't like Applebee's. Uh, I, I, actually, I don't, I don't mind Applebee's. Um, the last time I went, uh, I ordered a steak and it was like the worst thing I have ever put in my mouth. <laughs> and, um, you know, like doing youth ministry and like, you know, doing like weird worm eating challenges or, or whatever to gross kids out or eating a steak from Applebee's is like, is worse. Not the same, the same level. No, yeah, I, honestly, that particular steak was worse. Oh my Lanta. Well, again, according to the news, um, it was like some business insider news story. We're killing casual dining, particularly Applebee's, Buffalo Wild Wings, IHOP, just the casual sort of nicer than fast food, but not quite better. <laughs> but we're ruining that. So you you definitely are helping. Thanks, Chuck. I, I will say that um, I, I basically prop up the Denny's uh, <laughs> near my house. So... <laughs> Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not totally ruining the casual dining, but but still, mostly killing it because you're only going to one. So, yeah, pretty much. All right. Next question: How many Lacroix or generics have you had? How much do you drink in a typical day? Well, let's put it that way. I have I have one a day. Oh snap! That you are definitely part of that, dude. How do you drink that stuff? Um. 
So actually the first time that I drank sparkling water, I was on um, a mission trip uh, to South America where we couldn't drink the water that was coming out of the tap. And uh, I went and I bought like these bottles of water because, uh, you know, we had, we had to buy bottles of water and uh, I opened the first one and it tasted terrible. The first sip of it was awful. Yep. And then, you know, but it was the only water I had. And I, I realized that it wasn't just awful. It was that it was mineral water and sparkling water. And then I finished that first one and went to the second one. And by the time I was on the second one, it was like, oh, man, this is really good. Um, and then I cut out soda completely um, a few years ago. But I've been drinking the the sparkling water since then because they're they give you that same comforting feeling as soda sometimes does. Not me, man. It gives me that I want to stop drinking that ever again feeling. So you basically have Stockholm Syndrome because you were forced <laughs> to drink that water. You had no other choice, but now you like it. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> now, it's, now it's delicious. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've never that, – that's the problem. There's a lot of things that just the first time you have them are not good, and then you keep having them, and, and they're good afterwards. But coffee is one of those things, so – Maybe that doesn't work on you, Byron. I'm, I'm immune, apparently. Well, one day, Byron, I'm going to hold you hostage with coffee, and then apparently you're going to like it. So. No, I'm going to vomit a lot. No, it's dude. disgusting. It's, we just pr- it's science. You can't argue with science, Byron. Um, all right, Chuck, next question. How many avocados do you have on hand at any given moment? Like in your pockets or whatever. <laughs> or in your kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just have to give you three on me. No, um, I, I don't. I, I love avocado, um, but I'll only get it at the store on my toast, at, at a restaurant on my toast. Um, I won't actually buy it myself from, like, the grocery store. Huh. Very snooty. So that, that, was, that was a total joke. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, anytime, anytime that I can find them fresh enough, I, I will buy an avocado. If, if it's fresh and affordable. Um, up here at Prescott Valley, you get a lot of a lot of ones that are not ripe yet. Yeah, which rock hard. I don't, I don't get that. I don't get like why they're selling these these rock hard things that look like avocados but are as hard as rocks in the grocery store. Well, so now I'm really curious. Have you actually ordered avocado on toast in a restaurant? Um, only only ironically. <laughs> Perfect. So um, my bro- my brother in law actually owns a restaurant in downtown Phoenix. And right after that thing came out attacking millennials for loving avocado toast, avocado toast appeared on his menu uh, the next <laughs> time I was there. And um, it, I ordered it. It's actually really, really good, but uh, everything he makes is really good. So, Fair enough. That's funny. All right. Um, are you a Fairweather fan? According to a recent published article, millennials have zero fan loyalty. So whenever – it's more that we're fans of a player. So when that player moves teams, then we move teams. Or are you a fan at all? Um, you know, I, I have uh, been an Eagles fan uh, since I was – since I've known what football was, I've been an Eagles fan. And, uh, you know, we won last year. We won the Super Bowl last year. And that was amazing. But, you know, most years being an Eagles fan has been, you know, not something that you necessarily talk about. So it sounds like you actually have a little bit of loyalty then. Yeah, and I'm also a, a, a big Cardinals fan. Um, yeah, because I live in Arizona, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't like the Cardinals if you live in Arizona. 
Um, and they, they're terrible. And I, I still. <laughs> That's true. That's an accurate statement. It's really hard to be a Cardinals fan and not be in Arizona. Just growing up in Arizona and carrying that with me, it's people are like, why are you even a Cardinals fan? I'm like, I know, I know. It's kind of, it's, it's a head scratcher, but I grew up there. How can you not be but a fan? The of- thing is, like, where you're at, there's a lot of Seahawks fans. The Seahawks were terrible for a generation. They finally had some success in the last 10 years. Like, they were a diehard Seahawks fan. They should understand this. Like They should. But I think there's enough of the fair weather nonsense going on where people are like, I'm only a fan because they have Russell Wilson and they're good now. I don't think that's everybody, but I think there's enough of that going on. Um, that they're just like, wait, your team's not good. How do you like them? Because I just am really a fan. But All right, next question. Chuck, do your snowflake tendencies make for a hostile work environment? <laughs> uh no no actually my, my job is 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 wonderful and the people that i work with are wonderful well according to a most or very recently published news headline i think it was just put out yesterday um it the the t- headline was simply are millennials snowflakes at work apparently it's enough of a concern that still being talked about still being published about so pretty great are they talking about like workplace racism and stuff that they're just like against because like <laughs> Or no, sexism, because I've worked in places where I've worked with, like, older men in particular who say terrible things, and I go, yeah, that's not okay. It and actually, they would probably call me a snowflake in response. It but, actually had nothing to do with that. I mean, I didn't read oh, the entire article, but... How millennial the, of you. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but the initial investigation was simply just, you know, entitlement issues and not wanting to work hard and just general stereotypes of... Oh, they're just on their phones and they don't want to be bothered with anything. Too. So I think it maybe touched on like, oh, don't make don't make this job too hard. It was just kind of stuff like that. So hmm. just really, really stereotypical nonsense. So, Gotcha. All right, Chuck. Next question. Why do you personally, as a human being, hate Sears? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we've ruined also Macy's traditional weddings, beer. Hooters, things like that. But, I mean, why do you, as Combat Chuck in the flesh, hate these things so much that you would ruin them on purpose? Well, um, you know, I, I can say that I ruined Hooters because it's demeaning and sexist. I don't think I ever did anything against Sears. Because well, it's demeaning and sexist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't, I, I can't. I can't think of anything I did against Sears. Did you uh, go there frequently? When I was a kid, my dentist was in the basement of, of a Sears. That's amazing. And uh, he was actually like the worst dentist on the on the planet. And uh, <laughs> that that location would say a little bit about his dental practice. And yeah, I wonder. I wonder if he like just went and like got a drill from uh, <laughs> the hardware department with a sign that said dentist or something because it was just. Oh, man, uh, that's fantastic. Wow. I mean, it's bad for your teeth, but fantastic for us. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right, next question, Chuck. Do you know what fabric softener is and how to use it? I do know what fabric softener is. Uh, I choose not to use it. Why? Are you just trying to ruin something else, basically? Or um, So it... On, honestly, the, it, it smells bad. I don't like the smell. <laughs> There's the snowflake issue. All right, so basically you are a snowflake. You can't deal with smells. Come on, Chuck. Get it together. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, though. That was good. 
Um, okay, I have a bonus question for you before we go into the last question. Um, what kind of facial hair do you have, and what, what's your routine for taking care of it? Um, I have a beard, and I, I, I let it grow out. I, I trim it every month, month and a half. Um, you know, shampoo, conditioner, beard oil. There we go, beard oil. Beard oil, that's millennial. Yep. That's it. We found it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's becoming a more popular thing. You can actually get that stuff now. It might not be good stuff, but you can get some of that stuff now, like in like grocery stores, Walmart, that kind of place, or like uh, pharmacies. You can start find you'll you're starting to find beard oil and stuff like that. And also, I've also found to my benefit uh, very small combs, which are good for trimming your must like using to trim your mustache and your beard. Those are those are available now and easily, so that's nice. Um, but I think that's more of our our generation kind of bring that into style. So. All right. Well, we do have. You know, I, oh, go ahead. I've never not been able to find beard oil. Um, going back to when I first grew my beard before any other millennials had that had it. <laughs> when you were seven. Good, <laughs> when you we have it before. Uh, I was a teenager with with facial hair. Uh, Josiah, I think you were too, actually. And yeah, I was. I, like, I, I remember I tracked down uh, beard oil. And uh, they had like a mustache bomb, and I, I I don't use the mustache bomb anymore. But like that was just in the grocery store, like in like two thousand four. Yeah, yeah. We I think we all rocked the the sideburns. Just I didn't have a beard yet, but we I had a neck beard kind of, but I kept it trim. But I actually started growing a beard by the time I was old enough to drive because I remember my driver's license. I had a beard in it. It so. was ugly. It was hideous. It was great. <laughs> Hush your mouth, dude. I could actually grow a beard. And I was like, it was not. Oh, so I wouldn't qualify that as a beard. But just, okay. okay, moving on. Next question. All right. So, it's didn't use enough words. <laughs> okay. So, um, why have you ruined golf? Apparently, uh, millennials, like pastors and other professionals, love to golf, but those of our generation just don't do it that much. So, why have you personally ruined golf? You know, I, I, I love golf, but I only do the one with a windmill. There you go. Um, you work on your short game a lot. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, yeah I, I, don't, I don't fully understand, like, the attraction to golf. If I was invited to go golfing, I, I, would, I would go. I, I know that, like, whenever I do a sports activity, I'm not sure if this is a millennial thing. I know a lot of other millennials who feel this way. If we're going to do a sports activity, we want to be really, really good at it. <laughs> and um, so, like, picking up, like, a new activity that I haven't done before, you know, like, going golfing, not, like, never having been anywhere at a putting range. Or not even a putting range. It's a miniature golf course, uh, which I'm really good at, by the way. <laughs> uh, I, I got to brag about it. Um, you know, like, going and, and, like, driving the first time, Trying to do that long drive with there are people around just seems a little, yeah, a little unpleasant. <laughs> I would never, say that I've the, never golfed. I, I actually once. enjoy golf. I am terrible at golf, but it's fun. It's a little frustrating, but it can be fun. the The problem I have with golf is it's super expensive. Yeah, that's probably why millennials don't golf nearly as much because it costs a lot. The clubs are ridiculously expensive, so just to get into it, you have to have the gear. And then the, the fees to actually go play are really bad. Like, so it's like, well, of course we don't do it. We don't have money for other things. Why would we spend it on golf? True story. That's why I don't go ever. But 
All right, Chuck. So to recap, I mean, you're kind of a stereotype, I guess. You you desperately hate Applebee's. You drink Lacroix La on the daily. You have at least one participation trophy. Um, you like avocados, sort of. Sometimes, ironically, sometimes not. And whether you like it or not, you hate something. I guess you hate Hooters. Maybe not Sears, but you're you're ruining American institutions, Chuck. I'll, I'll say it. I, I hate That's Hooters. Fair. That's fair. I, I, I hate that a place like that exists. That's fair. So, well, I guess maybe you're sort of a stereotype, but like, like, like I like to share, we do this on purpose because if we reduce an entire generation of people, namely us, namely millennials, down to a stereotype, then in some way we're dehumanizing, which is, I think, what you're talking about with Hooters. Um, we're dehumanizing. We're kind of reducing an entire generation to these ridiculous stereotypes and, and trying to put them in these boxes. And that all that does is lead to division and separation between generations. So thank you for playing the game though, Chuck, to help us reiterate that and to have fun while doing it. So combat Chuck, uh, with every guest, we ask them about their experience their ministry, um, life, their education, all that jazz. I'm going to do the same with you, but before I do, I actually want to change the order of these questions because I think it would be helpful in just you sharing your story. Um, You kind of have a a unique story, if I remember right, about your your engagement with the church growing up. As you've probably heard on this podcast before, we're millennials. We confront stereotypes. The stereotype is we don't go to church. Um, But you have sort of this story of the church maybe doing some serious redemptive work in your own life growing up um, that you had shared with me before. And I don't know if you could speak a little bit about your relationship, your initial relationship with the church. Um, if you would be willing to do that, that'd be awesome. Um, so actually, I, I, I've been asked by my mother not to share that story anymore, but... Um, That's fine, don't... <laughs> okay. I'm kidding. Oh, seriously? Um, <laughs> yeah, that was... A, that, well, uh, she was kidding. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but so basically... Uh, you know, uh, unlike some of the other people that I know um, that grew up in church, a lot of the, like a lot of people that grew up in church, they grew up like there are generations of Christians that you know they can point to that that also grew up in church. Uh, like I know, like Byron's grandparents and parents are in my church that I pastor. Like he has like you know generations of Christians before him. Um, you know, our our family looked a little bit different. Uh, you know, my parents, when they first started engaging with the church and they were unmarried, um, you know, my dad had two kids and my mom had three kids and, uh, ended up being pregnant with me at the time. I'm, I'm the youngest of that group. Um, and, uh, this, you know, there's a story of this, of this, you know, Nazarene pastor reaching out to both of them. And uh, at some point, uh, yeah, you know, I I don't. I, since this is going online. I, I don't want to give too many details. So I'm not sure that they're 100 correct. Fair enough. Or at least give the disclaimer that like this is a story that happened before I was born, and and getting the the story from from my parents in little tiny pieces and not in like a a total like one shot. Um, so at some point, like my mom ends up living in Pennsylvania, like going back to her where her family lives and and my dad is in northern california and uh you know my mom's pregnant with me and 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 this this nazarene pastor somehow leads both of them to christ 
and they decide they're going to get married with like a phone call because they decide that's that's what they need to do since they're starting this Christian life. And uh, my mom loads my three older siblings uh, or three of my older siblings and is pregnant and drives from Pennsylvania to Northern California in a Volkswagen bug. Nice. Uh, gets there, marries my dad. And then after that, like we are, we grew up in the church and we were in the church. Uh, anytime that the doors were unlocked, we were at church and then they gave my parents a key. Huh. Um, so we were, we were there a lot and we, and we grew up in the church, but at the same time, uh, before that, my parents were not, um, not only were, were they not Christians, they're not necessarily what you would consider to be good people. <laughs> Um, is this why your mom jokingly says hey chuck you don't need to share this story you know uh, i mean but you know you've seen like i have seen the change that christ has made in my parents uh and in my dad over a lifetime of of walking with him and, and living with him and you know my my dad loves jesus more than anything now um and and gr- growing up in that situation, there are um, like a lot of things that happened that I recall that are, are a little strange now. And at the time, I didn't understand the significance of them. Like one of the things I remember uh, when we were kids, every week we would have this big bag of, of Budweiser cans uh, to take to the recycling plant. And I remember, you know, at some point, when I was like five, six, seven, eight years old, that stopped, you know? And, uh, I remember like as, as a teenager starting smoking and like my parents like reached like struggling to quit. And actually when I was like, I was, I was still a teenager. I don't remember exactly what, what, what year it was. Um, actually my mom and I, we quit together. Uh, we quit smoking together. Like that's, that's not something that kids that grow up in the church. That's not, that's not an experience, an experience that, you know, the good church kid always has. <laughs> no, that's, that is, that is an incredibly unique story, but a very cool story. So I guess to follow that all up, my question for you was the church was a very meaningful experience for you growing up. It, it, oh, I, it had a deep impact on your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we were uh, crazy, uh, to put it mildly. You know, my uh, my older siblings were, you know, had had grown up and they had, they, you know, they, they had some things in the, in the way in the way that they acted in the church. My one brother um, broke the arm of, of two different youth pastors, apparently. Oh, my. Um, you know, and. Like there, there was a lot of stuff. There's a lot of like a, a very worldly mindset, a very like, if you mess with me, I'm going to, I'm going to knock you out mindset. Yeah. Um, you know, of, uh, of, of, of growing up in the church and, uh, you know, we learned to turn that off at church a little bit. Um, <laughs> and, and, the, and the church was, was very accepting of us because they could see that we were trying to turn it off a little bit when we got to church, but they also like, um, we're, we're very, we're very, very accepting of this, of this broken backwards worldly family that still very much smelled and acted like some of the worst parts of the world outside the doors of the church. 
Um, and through the church, like I, I, I have seen the change in my parents' lives and, 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 and you know, grow, growing up, up, up in the church, being a teenager, making the decision, you know, I'm, I am going to follow Christ, which means I'm giving up this, um, I, this tough guy act. I'm giving up the, you know, you look at me wrong. I'm going to punch you sort of mentality. So coming into like, your next question is going to be like, what, what does the church mean to me? Yeah, absolutely. It is. <laughs> and and my, my answer to that question has to do a lot with, you know, who I believe Jesus Christ to be. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the rescuing savior, uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Uh, but to me, the, the part of him that I have seen most in my life is the, is a savior and not just that as a church word, but as if I didn't have Christ in my life, I don't know where I would be. I don't think I would even be alive. And if I was, I would not, I would not be a type of person you would want to be around. Hmm. Especially at um, six foot six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so then my natural question, my natural follow-up question is going to be, did that investment that this church, this pastor, this group of people made in your life and experiencing who Christ is naturally lead you to where you are today? Because I don't know if you've said it yet, but you currently are a lead pastor now. Yes, I am. I'm, I am the lead pastor of a, of a really great church, you know, and I, I, I would not be here without, without that investment. You know, I, I, I would not be here if the church wagged their fingers at my parents and said, Hey, you're, you're sinning, which is true. They were, they were sinning and, and all sorts of things you need to stop. And, and they did, they, they did expect them to stop. And, and, and a lot of the things that happened did, did stop, but it wasn't through like a finger wagging. You gotta, you gotta, fix your life before you come to us sort of way that I, I, I feel like some people in the church have gotten the sense that that's what we're telling them. Mm -hmm. Clean your life up first, believe the right things and act the right things. And then you'll belong to us. That was totally backwards from the way it worked with our family. So we belonged first in our family. And then we, we had a hope for belief and, and you know, we even said we believed, but I, I'm not sure like how strong that belief even even was at at the beginning. Um, I mean, I guess it. Yeah, you know, I was a little kid. I I, I I just don't know. And then the the behavior came years later. Hmm. You know. And so, tell me then, your briefly the story of I, I guess I'm going to assume you graduate high school or something, and then what do you do? that leads you down the path to become a pastor? Like, just give us the real quick version of your call, if you could. Oh, yeah, I, I can do that for sure. Um, so I actually, you know, I, I felt called into the ministry in high school. Um, I was at some of the same camps that, that you guys were, where they were preaching about, you know, do you feel called to be uh, a minister? And I think s some of those things, we, we raised our hands at the same time. Yep, which is kind of a funny <laughs> trip to think about. And then, you know, when I turn 18, 19 years old, uh, we have uh, a youth pastor that ends up leaving. Our youth group doesn't have a leadership. They, they end up uh, putting a couple of other adults in charge that kind of want to make it uh, a playtime. And I end up, there, there are kind of lessons going, uh, but I end up kind of like taking over the lessons at that point. And um, 
And then like every now and then, like we'd have another like actual, like real adult step in and, and lead the youth group. And, and I'd be a helper again. And then I, and then they'd step out and I'd be a teacher again. And I ended up uh, teaching uh, in the youth group. So yeah, I ended up just kind of taking over the direction of the youth group a little bit. Um, but also like being really young and being really being too young to be in that position. Um, and then going to the Bible college and it was really funny cause God like worked it out perfectly with the Bible college. I had enough money, uh, to go to like two years and get everything. Like in all the classes that I took in those two years were directly applicable to youth ministry. So like when I, when I, when I dropped out cause I ran out of money, I had all the skills I needed for youth ministry. And then four or five years ago, uh, I decided, you know, I, I, I want to be a senior pastor. That's what God called me to do. That's, and I, I signed back up for NBC and I start taking the rest of these classes that I took for being a pastor that you need to be a senior pastor. But you don't need to be a youth pastor. So God just provided that really, really well. So you've had an interesting experience in ministry. And for those that don't know, NBC stands for Nazarene Bible college, just for those not oh, yeah. Nazarene folks. <laughs> um, but curiously, of my guests like what are the specific things you want to talk about on this show that thing that are the things that you care about well a lot of times we have uh conversations about stuff that we can't stand things that we want to fix with the church things that we think are broken things that would just drive us nuts but then we also want to say that this is what we're doing about that and so you've already done that without me having to to really point it out or articulate it um you wanted to talk about the church needing to be more inclusive of everybody and that's kind of your story is the church was inclusive of your family. And so I guess what I would like to hear from you is, is what are you doing now as the lead pastor of a church? Speaking of that church is the church that Byron's grandparents go to. It's also a church that I used to pastor in. And now combat Chuck is the, well, lead I want to point out something real just... quick. Um, I helped build that church. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But literally, though, like you were, two I was or three like three or four, stuff, right? and my grandpa was actually the one in charge of the building project when they built that church, and I was continually on the construction site, getting in the way and causing trouble. Um, but yeah, so I, I always tell people I helped build that church. So you're welcome, Chuck. It's there because of me. <laughs> oh well, now I know who to blame if anything goes wrong with it. <laughs> it was a long time ago, Chuck. You know, <laughs> stuff breaks down after a while. Yeah. So back back to the discussion at hand, though, the inclusive nature of church, that's something you said you care about. But that's also something that seems like you experienced and is kind of the reason why um, you you are a part of the church. So tell us a little bit, like, what are you doing? What, what are some of the things that you're most passionate about when we talk about the church needing to be more inclusive? Um, so I think that there's a mindset in some churches and um, you know, I'm, I'm actually very new at this Prescott Valley church. They're still getting to know me and, uh, I, I'm going to start scaring them pretty soon with some of the types of people that we end up bringing in. Um, <laughs> and I've, I've actually, I've told them that, that I'm, I'm going to be bringing in people that, you know, you might not be, uh, super comfortable. Um, but there, there's this mindset of, and we don't actually believe it theologically. And when we think about it, we don't believe it but then we still try to get people like we still expect it from people is, is you come to us and you believe the right things and, or you get your behaviors taken care of. And once you believe the right things and get your behaviors taken care of, 
then you can belong. Uh, whereas, you know, theologically, we know that when, when people meet Jesus, you know, they belong first before they ever understand totally who he is. Uh, and they belong first long before they're ever uh, sanctified or, or before they look like church people. And uh, one of the illustrations that I like to do to um, help people understand the belonging first is uh, I, I have two sons. Uh, they're seven and eight. Uh, one of my sons is adopted and I have, I've been his dad for the last three years. And, you know, you look at, you look at, at uh, that son, his name is Chainsaw, by the way. Um, Chainsaw. Yeah. So you look at, you look at Chainsaw and he talks like a Sanford. He thinks like a Sanford. Uh, he is, doesn't have like a lot of the genetic traits, but a lot of the personality traits from being part of our family are, are, are there. They are just things that he's drawn. And there, there are little sayings that we as Sanfords have that he knows. And, and, you know, a lot of people like look at him and, Oh, well, he's your son. They wouldn't even think he's adopted. And, and then I have this other son, his name's football. Uh, those aren't their real names, by the way. It's just when I talk in public, they don't like me to use their real names, So I let them pick their nicknames. Um, <laughs> you know, football is my son. And if anybody tried to tell me that football is not my son, I, I don't, there's not many things that I would want to fight someone over, but like that would probably be one of them. You would turn into combat <laughs> truck. You would live up to your namesake. Yeah. Uh, like that, uh, the implication that he's not my son is, is, is ridiculous and hurtful and uh, offensive. And it's offensive to me as the dad. And it's offensive to him as, as the, ch the child. Cause you know, he, he calls me dad and thinks of me as his dad and, uh, he's not adopted yet, though. He's he's a, a foster son. He doesn't have a, adoption yet, but he's he's learning and he's here and he belongs. So in the church, we have people that uh, have accepted Christ and have you know that that saving belief, and you know we we believe theologically that when someone believes that they are adopted into the family, uh, but then we also have people that haven't haven't done that yet. And they're, they're not, theologically speaking, adopted into the family yet, but they still belong the same way that football belongs. You know, they're still, they're still our people. They're still our, our family. And it's, it's offensive and detrimental to everybody involved to try to act like because you don't believe yet and because you haven't learned the things that the church believes yet in a lot of cases that you're somehow – an outsider, uh, while the, and while there is the, you know that that difference in adoption, there's still both both people that believe and unbelieve are are part of the family. Well, I think what you're kind of talking about too is that you're going to make some people uncomfortable. You're joking. People are going to be uncomfortable oh, because no, I think the, the people, well, people are, are going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> And, and the re and the reason is that to be inclusive to help people belong requires work. It can require sacrifice. It can require some struggles and, and and that sort of thing. So, how do you how do you cope with that? How do you help others be equipped or be capable to to help others belong? Or how do you actually practice the art of helping someone belong? So, uh, there there are like that. That's it's a really hard question. And it does take a lot of work and it does take a lot of sacrifice. 
Um, you know, one of the things that I personally have had to do in order to uh, be accepted of everybody that comes through the doors, I had to take a really hard look at what I believe because I'm a Christian. What are the Christian beliefs that I, as the pastor, am, am teaching and preaching? And, and what are my personal opinions about life and, and government and politics and, and creating a, uh, a separation there, you know, th- this, this is a, a political belief. This is a personal opinion that I happen to have, and that this is the truth of the gospel that I am called by God to preach and, and helping the people in the church kind of sort through that is, is another thing too. Cause you know, we have a lot of, 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 opinions a lot of notions that are that we might feel really strongly um that might come from certain experiences that we've had that might be the good and then we have the gospel of almighty god that we're called to live out and that we're called we're called to reflect and being able to separate those two things is really important you know it and it is it, it is hard for people to make that separation. There are things that were, that were really hard for me. I know um, a few years ago when I, w- I was still down in Tucson uh, being the associate pastor, one of my favorite hobbies is to go shooting. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't, I haven't been hunting and I don't, uh, you know, shoot at anything but targets, but I really enjoy that. And, you know, I would talk about that at church. Well, there are people that have, a, a political opinion in the church down there that are like, Hey, that's why, why would you even own a gun? If you own a gun, it's, it's because you're, you want to shoot somebody. And I disagree with them. And we can have that political conversation someplace other than church. But if we're having that political conversation of, of, you know, what to do about the hobby of gun shooting, we're not having the conversation about how do we best reflect God's grace. How do we best live out the mission that He's given us? Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it's it's kind of it's there's so much to that. You know, the the conversation, uh, the conversation that you're talking about is kind of this. We need to learn to agree to disagree. But there's there's maybe a next level that I would want to ask ask you more of. Or uh, actually, Byron byron was telling me a little bit because byron spent some time closer to you in your ministry or he knows a little bit more about your youth ministry but there's some work to be done as far as just including different sorts of people i guess i don't know is that the right way of saying that well the way i would word it is so i do know that you you have worked with special needs people in the past just like i have we have a shared experience working in schools um caring for those people deeply um any church I've really ever spent a lot of time in either working in or being a part of, you don't know a lot of special needs people. Um, and that could be from anybody from like people who are in a wheelchair or people who, you know, have down syndrome or autism. Um, and that I think there's a reason for that. Um, I feel like sometimes it's because parents are embarrassed about the extra work and patience it takes to work with people. But I also feel like the church is not inclusive to them. They, they say, we'd love to have you, yeah. But when you deal with, especially as someone with autism, like a child with autism, you have to be patient. And it's hard to include them into um, a normal children's ministry without people who are going to have that patience. So as far as the church is concerned, how do you see a way for us to be truly inclusive to people who really do need extra attention and care but desperately need Jesus just like everybody else. 
Oh, oh yeah. So when we're talking about special needs inclusion, sorry, I was just talking about something totally else for the last. Uh, no, um, I, I think these are all no. things in my experience with you, since I've known you since like junior high, um, I've gotten to know you even more recently because we're back to like close together again. We, we haven't been close proximity for a long time, but we've talked a lot about this in the last year or so. Um, so what do you see? And I know you've done some work in this regard to, to make your youth group more inclusive and you've worked with people with special needs, but how do we as the church find ways to let people know that, yeah, you might need more attention or whatever, but you need, you need Christ just like everybody else. And we're going to find a way to, to be a part of that. Yeah. So I, I see in, in, the, in the churches that I've, I've worked with uh, the heart being right to include people with special needs, but the knowledge not being there. Um, and I, I know that I know there are some churches where, where the heart's not there. And that, that's, that's a different issue. And I think that's a, a spiritual issue with, with the people. Um, but you usually we're in a position where the heart is there, where they want to be included. They want the uh, autistic kid, the autistic adult to be included, but they're not really sure how to do that. Um, and it would be really hard for me to come on a podcast and say, well, here are five things you can do to include (laughs) special needs. Um, you know, every special need is different. Um, you know, going back from, you know, when I, when I ran the youth group down, down in Tucson, we had kids with autism and ADHD and just in with youth group with us that you wouldn't even necessarily notice that they, we're there now that does that mean that we didn't have to take any precautions or not precautions process is the wrong word um any adjustments to to make them feel um accepted uh, of, of course we did you know we had the girl with epilepsy so we stopped flashing the lights when it was time to leave because we had a girl with ep- epilepsy and, and you know that was probably the simplest change ever we had uh, another change it was really hard for me as the teacher uh, but I think really helpful, help, healthy for the youth uh, was we had uh, this kid with, uh, and he's an adult now, and he's a, a great young man now. And I, I really respect this guy. His name's Nick, um, who, when he was a teenager, he had the worst case of ADHD that I had ever seen in anybody. I would teach the lesson, and he'd be in the back of the youth room, uh, hanging upside down, uh, bouncing up and down. <laughs> Uh, we had like these workout halls in youth group and he'd be like hanging on like four of them uh, upside down the entire time. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know why he's here. Cause he's not, he's not here. He's not listening to the lesson. And I remember getting a little frustrated. And then the second week he was there, we did the lesson. And at the end of it, I did a, a discussion question and, you know, he had been doing that, that crazy stuff in the back all the time, distracting me like all oh, okay, Cause I have ADHD too. So with him doing that, it's really hard for me to pay attention <laughs> <laughs> um, and this this kid and he's like 13 at the time comes back with not only with being able to tell me what the lesson was about but insights thinking about it insights from the week before uh that he had been thinking about all week and he ends up you know really just just, just bringing home and bringing on onto his level and onto the teenager's level um everything that i was talking about and like, it was amazing. Uh, so after that, you know, we had some kids during youth group, uh, cause there were a couple other kids that that was more comfortable for them where they would do that. Well, during the lesson, they would 
goof off and that everybody else in the, in the room had to adjust because, you know, it is, it is harder to pay attention when there's somebody in the back of the room hanging upside down, but are you willing to do that extra work to help them out? And, you know, for us, the answer was yes. And that's one of the reasons why Nick was included because, because, because we said yes. Because you basically valued that kid enough to even augment something that maybe some would say, oh, it's not a big deal, but to change your teaching style, it's kind of a it's kind of a shift that you have to wrap your head around to be able to do that. Well, and there's another big group that I know that your your last church and your current church have a long history of working with too that aren't necessarily special needs kids or anything like that, but um, another group of people that I think are often talked about being wanting, like churches say, we want to include these people but the reality of it's very difficult. And that would be people dealing with recovery. Um, churches who work with AA and celebrate recovery. Um, some interesting things can happen in those situations. And it might invite people in that people in your church congregation might not be super excited about. Um, so how do, how do you, and I know, like I said, Tucson, your church in Tucson's work with celebrate recovery. I know, and your current church has a history of working with these groups of people through AA and Celebrate Recovery, how can we as the church find ways to be more inclusive to them as well and, and to encourage them to continue getting clean or to stay clean and, you know, and, and really value their lives also? Um, I, 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 I am in the process of, of, of continually seeking that answer. And I think the, the, the correct answer is, is very, a very individualistic approach. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too individualistic. But every person is different, um, and and trying to reach out to the people because there's there are people that have have hangups about the church. Um, you know, we um, up here in PV, we have uh, you know some AA groups that meet with us, and you know, I I'm I'm figuring out how to build that relationship, and I I we have we have people. Uh, that are from the AA group that come to our church and there's, but they're not the AA people. They're God's people that happen to be in AA. Mm -hmm. But, you know, wanting, wanting to reach out to more in that group and, and you know, AA is a great program that tells people that they need to find a higher power. And I love the fact that they're doing it in a church because then we're there to tell them who that power is and to introduce them to the God that rescues and saves, you know, as, as far as having, having an answer of, of how, of how do we reach out to these people? How, how do we include them? Um, the only, the only answers I can give to the, that big question is, is to love them, treat them like we would want to be treated uh, and, and to be patient. Um, I, I, I wish I, I wish I could give a, a more specific answer of you know, this is how this is how you love these people but i, I don't think that there is uh, a blanket answer for for how to do that but i think you did give the blanket answer of people are people and they're all different the church needs to stop under stop trying to force everyone into boxes which we've talked about on this podcast before putting people in boxes so we can say oh we minister to them in this way and the the solution is really so much harder and it's finding ways to love and care for people who have individual needs and issues. 
And that, that works for people with special mm-hmm. needs. That works for people in recovery. That works for people in foster care. Um, people who have been adopted. Those situations are not necessarily typical situations. Now, it affects more people than you'd think, probably, if you're not working with those groups of people because you don't necessarily see the numbers. But mm-hmm. that has a huge impact on someone's life. And if you find a way to be there and say, hey, I love you, and we're going to work through this with you, we're going to be available to you, and like you were talking about with your family, like, you know, you weren't perfect the second you walked into that church. Um, and, you know, you said your, your family kind of tried to tone it down and try on Sunday mornings. But, like, there seems to be a persistence in your life where someone was like, hey, you know, we still care about you. Like, let's work together. Let's- Absolutely there was. And that's what it takes. It, it, honestly, we need more Christians to be stubborn in, how the, in the fact that they love people instead of being stubborn in like, well, those people aren't like us or they smell or they look different. They act different. They're distracting, whatever it might be. Cause if you involve, if you invite people with special needs into your, into your churches, you're going to have people who sit in the back and fidget like crazy. You might have someone who brings a child who continually makes noise. If you have someone with mental retardation in your group, I work with special needs kids. They make noise. Even if they're nonverbal, they, they can't ask questions or anything, but they'll just be loud. They'll, they'll scream randomly. They'll, they'll do all kinds of stuff. Um, and you have to learn to just be like, well, that's just how it is. It's fine. Um, and that bothers a lot of people. Um, and I mean, you said you, you, you've struggled with ADHD too. So that might bother you as a pastor trying to give, you know, to give a sermon, but we have to find ways to, put ourselves out there and say, we're going to love you no matter what, because that's what Christ called us to do. And that's a shift. So the, the phrase I keep the, yeah. And the shift and the phrase I keep hearing, I think is, uh, is best summarized with just the, the words be there. I think a lot of the, the history of church outreach, pastoral care has been come here. And when you come here, you have to be at have a certain way and you have to look a certain way. Um, and you have to dress a certain way and act a certain way and all that jazz. But what I hear Chuck and also you, you saying Byron is that it's, it's best when we just are, are there. Chuck had someone that was there. Mm-hmm. Chuck is trying to be there for other people and to be there. I think it's, it's a simple phrase, but it means we have to contextualize the gospel message. We have to understand what is going on in our context. We have to see what people are dealing with. We have to understand our culture. We talked about it last podcast where we're, we're trying to exegete culture we need to understand what is happening with the world around us and not be so detached i think the bad rap the stereotype the bad rap some of it very truthfully um and this this will be my final question for you chuck and then and then uh then we'll have to wrap this up otherwise we'll talk about this all day long um the bad rap the church has is that we're just kind of detached and exclusive that um there's this mold that everyone has to fit in that it's not necessarily the most loving of places. There's a lot of hypocrisy and judgmental attitudes. Um, there's so much that, that on both sides of the generational divide is just assumed. Um, millennials that don't go to church may assume things that aren't necessarily accurate about the church. Um, the established church, those that I would call the seasoned saints, have so many assumptions about those outside or those younger than them, like like us, like millennials, which is so much of what we're trying to help 
um, destroy, I guess, with having fun with stereotypes. But the final, the final question I'd pose to you, Chuck, is if there are this, these disillusioned people that are maybe, you know, used to the exclusivity of church, of the you have to look and act a certain way, or maybe there's those that are a part of that and they don't even realize that that's what they're doing, um, what's the final thing you would leave them with? Um, what's the church of tomorrow look like as far as Chuck is concerned when it comes to dealing with what, what the Bible would call the least of these? Uh, I'm sorry. There's a squirrel. (laughs) So I think that the church of tomorrow is going to be okay. As long as the church of today becomes the most radically loving group of people, which is who God is calling us to be. So despite all the shortcomings, despite all the things that could be distractions, we just need to learn how to love even more. Absolutely. Even when it's crazy to love someone as much as we love them, we need to be that loving of a group of people. I think, Chuck, for the first time, and and I'm not editing right now, obviously, because I'm talking, we might have to just interject like three seconds of all you need is love from the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chuck, I really appreciate it. we appreciated having you on the show. We appreciate, and I'm going to speak for Byron too. Um, otherwise, this will be like another apology next week. That you put up with us calling you Combat Chuck for the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years now. I don't know how long it's been that we've called you that. But thank you also for just sharing your story and shedding some light on what it means to be a millennial pastor, where you're at, the things that you care about. We really appreciate it, Chuck. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys so much. This is, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed it. So, well, we'll have to have you back and we can talk some more because there's a lot I think we covered, but there's a lot more to cover, and that was that was really good. So, thank you again for being with us. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And to our listeners, as always, if you would like to hear more, go and subscribe. You could also review our podcast if you think it's worth that. It's probably not, but feel free to do it anyways. <laughs> um, you can engage with us. It's <laughs> you can engage my favorite with podcast. <laughs> That might just be of you guys. I don't know. <laughs> well, thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Chuck. But as always, you can find us on social media. You can find us on the interwebs. You can find us on all the places where things are happening digitally. But as always, if you want to hear more about what millennials think or what they're doing, um, the faith-based work they're doing in culture like Chuck, then please Join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. As always, I'm your host. And I'm your co-host, Byron. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.